This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Thank you for listening. We have an incredible guest today, and his name is Ed Catmull. He is the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios, which he started with Steve Jobs and John Lasseter, and president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation. Ed has also received five Academy Awards, and as a computer scientist, he has contributed to many of the most important developments in computer graphics. He has done a hell of a lot, and in this episode, we talk about many different things. The birth of Pixar, his background, going from a technician to more of a manager, president in this particular case, the creative process, storytelling, how they embrace it and developed it within Pixar, the mistakes they've made, what they've thrown out, and much, much more, including the lessons that he's learned, the things he's observed working with people like George Lucas and Steve Jobs. Before we get to the interview, two things that I like to provide. The first is a quote, and this is from Harry Truman, and it is as follows. It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. And in fact, Ronald Reagan has a very, very similar quote to this effect. The next is a Japanese proverb. Of course, you know, I'm a Japanophile. I used to live there and I love sharing kotowaza or Japanese proverbs. And there are many. We talked about the Sarumo Kigarochiru a few episodes back. And this time we have shiranu ga hotoke. Shiranu ga hotoke. Shiranu is not knowing 
ga is a subject marker, basically. Hotoke. So not knowing is Buddha. What the hell does that mean? Shiranu ga hotoke means ignorance is bliss or what you don't know can't hurt you. And the, the way that I interpret this as it applies to this particular episode is sometimes to do the incredible, you have to go in somewhat naive. And if you knew what you were getting yourself into, you probably wouldn't sign up in the first place. So beginner mind or being a novice or jumping into the unknown can sometimes allow you to do what you would otherwise be told is impossible. Without further ado, I want to get us to the interview. If you want all the transcripts, the links, the show notes, and everything else, please go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to support the show, please go to my book club and you can find a number of books that have changed my life. That's fourhourworkweek.com forward slash books. Hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today for a conversation. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Well, my pleasure. This is uh, somewhat of a landmark moment for me because I feel like destiny has had this in the cards. I remember 1995 very clearly for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that I bought my first ever share of stock, and that was in Pixar. Uh, and it was also, I guess, the last year of Calvin and Hobbes, so it was a very emotional year for me. But I have been following comic book art, animation, and Pixar for as long as I've known of it. And of course, as, as co-founder, you've had a, a key role in creating a lot of the stories that I can pretty much play back sort of frame by frame, line by line. And of course, I'd like to talk about that, but also Creativity Inc. and the book that you've put out, which Forbes has said might just be the best business book ever written, which is a very strong <laughs> testimonial. What I'd love to ask you is perhaps starting with a defining moment, or maybe it wasn't a defining moment. When Pixar went public, what did that feel like? Do you remember that day extremely clearly, or was it not a defining moment? Well, the time we went public, which is in 1995, was actually very close to a number of other events that happened around the same time. So mm -hmm. I look at it as a period of time, and, and for me, it was a pivotal year. Mm -hmm. But we went public one week after the movie came out. Right. Very smart. So uh, Steve Jobs' logic was that, well, he wanted us to go public, and he had some reasons for it, uh, which we were skeptical of, to be mm -hmm. honest. But he wanted to do it after the film came out to demonstrate to people that, in fact, a new art form was being born. Mm -hmm. And that was what we were investing in. So the film came out. It was a big success. It was a success for me in the sense that we had made a film and it wasn't just a technical tour de force. Mm -hmm. I never thought of this as we can demonstrate technically we can do it, but we actually wanted to make a real honest to goodness, complete film. Mm -hmm. I always had that goal in mind and that's what we achieved. It was also the culmination of 20 years of pursuing this dream. Mm -hmm. So there is within the short period of time, the culmination of 20 years, the achieving of a goal, going public, mm -hmm. starting off on our next film 
and actually we began to think about two films, uh, the other being Toy Story 2, mm-hmm. having a relationship with Disney. Mm-hmm. And while all this was going on, I personally felt a sense of loss. Mm. And it was a curious one mm-hmm. because I had just achieved this goal, but the loss was in having achieved the goal, I was now missing one of the defining <laughs> frameworks. <laughs> so I went through a, a period of a year of trying to sort this out. And, and I realized as I went through that year mm-hmm. that there were some really exciting things observed along the way. Mm-hmm. And one of them that I observed was that most successful companies have this arc where they rise. And then with that success, most of them fail. Most right. of them fail quickly, but a lot of them, they take longer, but ultimately they, they fall apart. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, okay, how do you make it so that it's sustainable? Mm-hmm. Because the, the people that I knew of who are in these companies, and I had a lot of friends in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. were smart and they were creative and they were hardworking. So whatever the problem was that was actually leading them astray was really hard to see. And the implication was that whatever that force was, it would also apply to us at Pixar. Mm -hmm. So this then became the interesting question. These forces are at work. Can we find them before they do us in? Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the year, I I, I realized this is actually the next goal. It's not a film. It's how do we have an environment in which we can find and address these problems? Mm Mm-hmm. So, so that was the big thing that I got in that year at, at a personal level. There was another one also, which was not in the book, but I will just tell you about it because it mm-hmm. was a, a personal thing for me. And that was when I was younger, because I remember this, thinking at some point I want to be the best in the world at something. Mm-hmm. Good goal. All right. So this is a goal that I had. So now it's 20 years later, the film comes out. And then now we're successful, and there are these phenomenal people here. There are the technical people, most of whom aren't well-known, but you've got Bill Reeves and Eben Ospi and people like that that helped build the technology. Uh, and besides uh, John Laster and Steve Jobs, there also is Andrew Stanton and Joe Ranft and Lee Unkrich and Pete Docter. A whole bunch of people were a part of this. Mm-hmm. So now being part of this group that achieved something, there was a question that I asked myself which I didn't admit to anybody at the time. And that was, well, all of this were, all of us were part of this, but how much of it was me? <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So this is this background question. So, well, I know I'm part of it and I'm mm-hmm. only part of it, but how critical was I to this? And, mm-hmm. and at the end of the year, as the goal became clear, I also realized that the question was not a useful question. Mm. And that in somehow trying to do that, I was actually misleading myself. Now, the only reason I bring this up was that I now recognize that a lot of people, when they reach that place where they're successful, they ask that question. And most people won't admit it, but they do ask the question. And a lot of people reach the wrong conclusion. Why is it misleading and what is the conclusion that they come to? Well, what I believe is that what we did together was not something that I can separate myself from. Mm -hmm. And this is true of most enterprises. It's a desire to separate oneself out is like 
asking for a clean answer to a question when there is no clean answer. Right. And it is true of most of the things in our lives, whether it's personal or business, is that the interconnection between them and the way they're all mixed together is inherently messy Mm -hmm. and confusing and there aren't clear boundaries. And the desire for complete clarity actually leads one away from addressing the mess that's in the middle. Mm. You know, this is uh, reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a very successful trader on Wall Street who said it's better to be roughly correct than precisely wrong. And it seems like that mess in the middle is something that a lot of people strive to avoid. You have an incredible technical pedigree. And of course, we could talk about the ARPA group. We could talk about uh, your work early on with all sorts of technologies that then have, have become standard technologies in the use of animation, texture mapping, and so on. One of my close friends, actually, who was a musician by training, ended up working at Pixar. I believe he's still there because he wrote his thesis at Princeton about texture mapping, of all things, and coded it himself. But what I'd love to get your thoughts on is, as someone who's exceptionally well-trained in computer science and engineering, how did you take that precision of, of thought, that logical approach to problem solving and replicating issues and so on, which, which I find translates into many different areas, and apply it to storytelling? And what, as in your, in your current role and in previous roles, what have been your sort of key observations with how to apply framework? And, I'll, and just one more comment that related to my, my one and only tour of Pixar. I live in San Francisco and uh, ended up having a friend of a friend who was an engineer at Pixar besides Rob, my previous friend. And I was so impressed by the process. I mean, you do have processes and it doesn't mean everything is a home run, but I remember looking at the color, sort of uh, the, the color coding of different segments of the films and I had never observed it. And it was, it was so genius to me when to see it laid out in front of me and that it was a deliberate decision. So that's a mouthful that I just put out there. But with an engineering mind, what have you observed about storytelling and, and why can't other companies get it right so consistently or people? Well, okay. So I've got three or four things to respond to there. So let me take one of those. It has to do with uh, the relationship between the, the precision of the science and the art side. Mm-hmm. For that, I, I go back to when I was growing up in the 50s in a, a rather unique time and post-World War II, but also a very safe time. And as I was growing up, my two people that I aspired to follow was Walt Disney and, and Albert Einstein. But for most of my childhood, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an animator. And I studied art, and I did very well in art in high school. And I also did very well in physics. But as I got to near the end of high school and going into college, I didn't see the path to get to the level of what the animators were at at Disney. So when I went to college, I switched over into physics. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing to me is that over the years, I've actually told that anecdote to people when I've given talks, how I, I switched over. And, and I say it rather abruptly like that. I suppose I switched over to physics. And, and usually there's a titter in the audience, sort of like, oh, that's an incongruous statement. <laughs> right. But then that caused me to think about it. It's like, okay, why is that incongruous? Mm-hmm. 
because most people to this day think of them as, as so radically different from each other. Mm-hmm. But I want to posit a different way to look at it. And it comes from, I think, what is a fundamental misunderstanding of art on the part of most people. Because they think of art as learning to draw or learning a certain kind of self-expression. But in fact, what artists do is they learn to see. Mm, Right. Observe. And Mm -hmm. the actual training is one of observation. Mm -hmm. So now if if you look at it from that point of view, is, okay, so which are the professions in which observation is not important? How about doctors or <laughs> engineers <laughs> or scientists? <laughs> is you want the skills of observing. And, and for me, there are different ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the storytelling side, then the first realization, and, and I think I understood this fairly early on, is that storytelling is the way we communicate with each other mm-hmm. all the way from when you're reading to your children when they're young, but it's also the news and magazines and the movies and television and storytelling is a way we do things. But even our education, our good mm-hmm. teachers, what are good teachers? They're telling us good stories, mm-hmm. their way of communicating understanding and what are scientists, biologists and neuroscientists trying to do They're trying to reach an understanding, and then they're trying to find ways of communicating that understanding to other people. Mm -hmm. These are all different elements of the way we communicate with each other. And and it's even stronger than most people think, because if you you take something complicated like making a movie, Mm -hmm. as an example, so you've got a few hundred people working on a movie, like it could be Toy Story, but it could be more recent films. Well, what is the story of the making of the film? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out it's too complicated to tell. Nobody writes that story down. Mm-hmm. And if you wrote down all the complexities of what it took to do any one of these major complexities, mm-hmm. that full story is too boring. Mm-hmm. It's too long. So what do you do when you tell a story, but you edit it down and you simplify it? Mm-hmm. So you simplify it in order to convey certain of the ideas that are critical, but you can't capture all of them. So you end up with a kind of mythology, and a mythology is a way of us teaching basic principles to each other, but the mythologies don't capture everything, and they never can. Mm -hmm. So we are in a continual state of trying to create our own mythologies. And even when we come up with a mythology, like the things we did on Toy Story 2, the people who were here at Pixar, a lot of them weren't here when we made Toy Story 2. So the pivotal experiences that are there, which are part of our history, were not experienced by a lot of the people who are here. And you can't actually pass that on as a story because then it begins to take on, like it fades over time. Right to a a pithy essence, but it no longer is a personal thing. Mm -hmm. So what you want is a new crisis. And Mm -hmm. in solving the new crisis, which they experience, Mm -hmm. then they get something different than they can get by hearing about somebody else's story. So we have a combination of both storytelling and experiencing, and we need both. In the crisis case, are these crises that organically appear in the making of every movie or are they things that you 
deliberately bring to a head or manufacture in some way to galvanize the troops and and spur creativity? Well, I, I think in order for them to be successful, they essentially need to be organic. Mm-hmm. So if you manufacture a crisis, and you can affect it somewhat, obviously, because if you set a budget or you set a schedule, right. for instance, and it's very difficult, then to some extent you are creating a crisis. Mm-hmm. But even that's a little artificial because the fact is if you don't meet the schedule or if you don't meet the budget, you have a different crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. So what you want are the kind of crises that arise out of the thing that you're doing, mm-hmm. but, but you don't artificially generate it. Got it. So I, I don't think of setting a, a budget or a schedule as an artificial generation of a crisis. Mm-hmm. But if we have a surprise that happens because things never go according to plan, then what you want to do is use the problem that's there as a way of getting you as a group to force the change in the process or to figure out problems in order to solve it. And in doing so, it becomes a combined joint effort to move everybody forward. And everybody has ownership in it. To come back to one of the things you said earlier, uh, or one of the terms you used, mythology, looking at, say, Joseph Campbell, of course, he's cited quite a lot in The Hero's Journey or The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Are there any other books or resources besides your own, of course, which I would recommend to everybody, that people can use to learn about mythology or these sort of archetypal structures to aid them in developing their own ability to tell stories? Are there any other books or resources that come to mind as being particularly outstanding? Or people. Well, for that yeah. yeah, it's fairly broad because I've been influenced by so many people and so many different things. Uh, I will say one thing that I did, which was informally, but in ways that are hard to articulate. Mm-hmm. It came from this thing, and just my brain works differently. It turns out I am unable to read poetry. Huh? No kidding. Because reading poetry within a few seconds shuts my brain down. <laughs> why is so, why is okay? Well, it was just differences. I was, yeah. it was, I was actually describing this to somebody. This is many years ago. And they said, well, don't read it. Listen to it. And all this came about because there was a new translation of the Iliad mm. by Thomas Fagels. Mm-hmm. And it was in verse form. Mm. So the thing is, I couldn't read it. So this woman at, at a dinner said, well, don't read it. Listen to it. So I bought the tape and I listened to it, and I found I was completely enthralled with it. And, and then I was surprised by the fact that here's a story that was orally transmitted 2,800 years ago in a different language to a different culture. And it was meant for oral transmission, of course, because it mm-hmm. had kind of that rhythm to it. Right. But now, translated all these years later into English the fact that it had this oral nature to it still worked and captivated me. And, and I was able to enjoy and pull in this entire story. So that, so that got me started down this path. Hmm. So what I did was I, I then started listening to these lectures from the teaching company mm-hmm. and they have these absolutely marvelous lectures. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I tried to listen to lectures of all of human history. So mm-hmm. there's ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia in Israel, and China, and India, uh, and going up through the Roman era, through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. It took a few years, 
so every day in the car I would listen to this, but I felt like I had this grand sweep of history. Mm-hmm. Now, at some level, it's all pretty high level because it's listening to lectures in a car. Right. But there was something about that which gave me a sense, which I loved, and it gave me a different feeling about people and how things relate to each other. So that, that was one level of things. The second is there are like the wisdom books out of various traditions from China and India and meditation and, and things coming out of Greece and Israel and so forth. And somehow reading all of those and the way people wrestle with those things, which are the foundations of our culture, I found informative. Now, do you mean the, the, both the classics and the religious texts and scriptures, like the, whether it's the, the, the Torah or the, the Tao Te Ching, what type of... Yes, all of those. All of the above. I mean, I mean you, you take all of those and say, okay, there's something about a breadth. So I don't try to grab one of them. I try to get the breadth there. Mm-hmm. Because I do believe that we are better off if we experience wide breadth. That's what a general education is. Mm-hmm. And then there's some point at which we dive really deep. Mm-hmm. And some people want to specialize. Like, I just want to do this. I just want to be an artist or I just want to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. so forth. So I understand that. And there's an experience of diving deep into something which is indescribable. So it's good to have that experience. And I think one has the breath that you, you need a combination of the two. And once you experience the depth in something, you're actually in a better position to go deeper into an area once you've discovered what your area of love is. Mm-hmm. Then there's the more modern thing in terms of neuroscience and how we work and mm-hmm. And then the other is just the observation of, if you look at what took place in in Silicon Valley and continues to take place in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and the rise and the fall of the companies and the way they interact and the amazing things that happen and the bad things that happen, Mm -hmm. that human drama I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of in the middle of it. Uh, Absolutely. And that's cool. So Uh, how, how do you look at the the mess that we that we're in and the good things that we're in part of the reason i moved to the bay area and then gravitated up to san francisco from the peninsula was because of that that chaos and the creation in that chaos you mentioned specialization when uh, you've obviously done a lot of work with george lucas and steve jobs do you view them as generalists specialists or both what were some of the key habits or routines, rituals, anything that either of them had that, that still stick in your memory? Well, on George, what was particularly interesting there is that while he was a successful filmmaker, he, even though he was not a technical person, mm-hmm. he viewed and believed to his core that technology was going to change the art of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So with the success that he had with Star Wars he was willing to do something that was not done anywhere else in the industry. So he was the sole person that did this. Hmm. And he said, I'm going to invest in bringing technology into filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And so that meant not only graphics and, uh, but also meant uh, digital audio and video editing. So I'm not was fortunate to be connected with George at that time, Mm -hmm. but he was unique in this. Why do you think he decided that? What led him to have that prescience where it seemed to be lacking in other people? What allowed him? Well, I think the thing that triggered him, and it's not that he ever told me exactly what the trigger was, but in the making of Star Wars, Mm -hmm. it required 
the best use of the advanced state-of-the-art of special effects at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were two parts to that. One was the precision control of optical printing and blue screen matting. Mm-hmm. So this is an optical process and required a great deal of technical skill on the part of the people who were there. Mm-hmm. And the second thing, which was a new idea for Star Wars, but was critical for effects, and I really appreciate this, but it was one of the breakthroughs for the film, mm-hmm. is that it's important to have objects blurred in the direction of motion. Oh, interesting. I've, yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't happen because of the way the projection systems work, then our eye picks it up and we actually see a double image, but we're not conscious of it, but we're conscious of it. Something is wrong. Mm. So what they did was they had a technical group that moved the spaceships while the shutter was open. Mm. So they captured the blur on the blue screen matting film. Mm-hmm. And then with great precision, worked to keep that blur of these spaceships as they then matted the objects together. So this was, for the time, very high-level technical skill. And then Star Wars was this enormous success. Mm-hmm. And George realized that technical expertise that was brought in by this amazing group of people was one of the things that helped elevate this film and put it into a different category. So with that success, he said, well, let's keep going down this path. How far can we go? Mm-hmm. Because that world outside there is continuing to change. Now, what's different about George was he made that little leap, or big leap, depending <laughs> on how you view it, from saying technology was a key part of this to saying, oh, that world outside is still changing. I'm going to be part of it and try to incorporate it. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was why he was that way. I don't know. But he was the guy that did it. He uh, it reminds me of Alfred Lee Loomis during World War II at Tuxedo Park, who was an amateur scientist, but who took a keen interest in radio and uh, later had a huge impact on detecting U-boats and whatnot in the war itself. Did George and Steve have anything in common or much in common? Well, I mean, they were quite different. I mean, they're very different from each other. Steve was an extraordinary person, and I wrote him about him at the end of the book, but there, I allude to him throughout the book. But there was something there which I, mean, I find interesting because I watched the arc of Steve over his life. Mm-hmm. And the image of Steve that people know publicly about the way he worked was from when he was younger, and I witnessed some of those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them weren't nice at that time. Mm -hmm. But as a result of being cast out of Apple and starting Next and then buying Pixar from Lucasfilm and then being part of starting up Pixar, Steve, who was so incredibly intelligent, he actually, he just figured out that some of those things that he did in the past didn't work and he changed his behavior. And he became a, a more empathetic person and he changed in the way that he dealt with them. Mm-hmm. Now, what the outside world sees is the mythology of the young Steve. Right. And then this, all of a sudden, this gigantic success of Apple and then the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And they connect the two together, but they didn't realize the arc that Steve went through. Mm-hmm. Why did they miss it? Mm-hmm. And the reason they missed it was that once Steve went through this change in his life, and he figured this out about 15 years ago, then basically everybody that knew Steve stayed with Steve for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. 
right? So we all witnessed that part of Steve. Now, he was always an intelligent and incisive in what he did, but his way of working with people changed. Mm-hmm. So when it came to the mythologizing about Steve and people would call me for instance and to talk about him, well, I was not going to psychoanalyze Steve while he was alive right. and nobody would. Mm-hmm. So why was that? Real, no, was that, uh, why, why was our boss? Right. <laughs> and he's our friend. Yeah. Yep. So Steve's my friend. He's, he's, I mean, at, at the end, he wasn't actually my boss. He was on the board of directors at Disney. Mm-hmm. But for all those years afterwards, uh, he still checked in all the time and talked and he had this passionate interest in what was going on. And, mm-hmm. and he was a caring person. And, you know, when I was in the hospital with my hips being replaced, you know, there was Steve in there visiting and checking up and wanted to make sure that they had the best medical help. And mm-hmm. so that image of Steve was not conveyed to people because the people that knew about him viewed him as just like, well, it's, it's our, their private relationship with Steve. So nobody right. talked about it. Right. So the mythology about Steve was actually a mixture of things without mm-hmm. recognizing that, as in, as you point out in Campbell's book, there is this hero's journey. Right. And Steve went through that journey. And by the end of his life, he was a very different person than he was mm-hmm. at the first. What were the uh, reasons, uh, this has been sort of an, an itch that I have to scratch now, but what were the reasons for IPOing that people were skeptical of that he had? Well, okay, so we're, we're now making the first film. Mm-hmm. And to then become a public company, for the rest of us, because none of us had ever been even in a public company, mm-hmm. let alone knowing what it means. It's like this could be a major distraction. And you hear Definitely. the stories about, well, okay, what does Wall Street expect? Does this actually kind of mislead you into the wrong directions or you have the wrong values in place? Mm-hmm. So there was the view of, well, let's make some films and prove our worth and get that under our belt before we go public. Mm-hmm. But Steve had a different logic. He said, right now, we have a three-picture deal with Disney. And the financial terms of the deal, while they were as good as we could have gotten under the circumstances, once we're a successful company, then our share of the profits were actually pretty small. Mm -hmm. So Steve wanted to renegotiate the deal, although he had a, and all of us had a very good relationship with Disney. Mm -hmm. But Steve said, at the end of three years, if we then split off as a separate company and we're no longer with Disney, we will be their worst nightmare. (laughs) They will have helped launch a successful competitor. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is that when Toy Story comes out, Mm -hmm. now now all of this is before it happens, so we're we're guessing about scam, but this is Steve prognosticating because mm-hmm. he now believes the film's going to be a big success. Mm-hmm. So he said, what will happen is as soon as the film is, is out, that Michael Eisner will realize that he's helped create a competitor. So he will want to renegotiate. <laughs> and if we renegotiate, then what we want is to be 50-50 partners. Mm-hmm. In an I should say, Right there, that's a different Steve than years before, where years where Steve sort of shot for the fences and tried to get almost everything for himself. Mm-hmm. He now has reached the point where he said, that's not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. A good place to be is a 50-50 partnership. So it's like a, a good standing. It's a, a high road to take. Mm-hmm. But if we're 50-50 partners, it also means that we have to put up half the money. Right. Well, you, Pixar doesn't have any money. Yeah, you need a war chest. 
So we need a war chest. So if we go public, we will get a war chest. Then when we renegotiate, we can come in and go for the kind of deal, which is a 50-50 deal. So the film came out, and within a few months, Steve got the call from Michael Eisner saying, <laughs> let's renegotiate. And so Steve says, okay, we want it to be 50-50. And all of that happened as Steve predicted it would. And for me, it was rather amazing. Yeah. She says, wow, he, he completely called it correctly. That's incredible. And it was coming from a place of the high ground of a true partnership. That's the way he wanted to think about it. It's a more sustainable structure, right? Than... And, and through all the years, he ultimately had trouble with Eisner, but it was because he didn't think Eisner was a partner with him. Why did he think that? Well, you know, it had to do with uh, certain things that Eisner said about in the public and so forth and about mm -hmm. Disney and, and so forth. He, mm -hmm. he just didn't feel like it was a partner relationship right. that you would expect. Mm -hmm. And at this time, Steve had now placed value on equitable partnerships. Mm -hmm. and, that, and there was a value he brought to the table. Mm. And in bringing that, because it was a value, it was actually one we could hang on to. But he was always very careful to say, Disney itself as a corporation is one that we really admire. They've done a great job of marketing our films. They've done a fantastic job with the parks and so forth. So through all of this, he worked very hard to keep a great relationship with Disney because he believed in the end mm -hmm. that it was going to lead to something good. No guarantees. Mm -hmm. And Steve was always realistic about that. But he believed that if we behaved well with them as partners, that we would end up in the right place. Amazing. I really enjoy these stories. And when you get into the, the war stories and I think people would look at Steve or they oftentimes would look at Pixar and say, well, my God, they're batting a thousand. They've always gotten it right. And what I'd love to ask you is sort of a two part. It won't be one of my eight parts questions, but what was the hardest film for you to make and why? And then secondly, related to George Lucas, uh, I've, I've heard on numerous accounts that he was hospitalized at least once during the making of star Wars with, you know, and he was, I mean, a really young guy at the time, but it was just from overexertion and panic attacks and whatnot. That's at least what I've heard, which has been the hardest for you to make and why. And then do you think for a film to truly be a landmark film that it is necessary for at least one person to make a sacrifice of that magnitude where they just are at the brink of falling to pieces or not? Well, I'll answer them in reverse order. First, and, and George, I wasn't here for Star Wars 1 mm -hmm. or 4, whatever it's called, the first mm -hmm. Star Wars. Right. But in fact, I never heard that. So I don't know whether it was true or false. I just, mm -hmm. I just didn't hear it. So I, I don't know. Okay. But the bigger question is like, which is the hardest? They do vary in their hardness. I would say there have been several which were extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. And some were only difficult. <laughs> right. And I think originally we thought, well, if you do a sequel, it's easier. But we found out if you're going to do something original, it's always hard. <laughs> right. Even if it's a sequel, so, it makes it, in, I would imagine, more difficult in some ways. Yeah, because you have to take them in a different place. And you're, you're constrained by the certain world that you've got. But you're expected to add something in terms of that world that really is interesting and not obvious. So the only thing that makes a film hard is if you keep going at it and, and it's not working. So you can't solve the problems. And then what happens is for all directors, they are emotionally invested in their films and they also get lost in them. It happens mm -hmm. to everybody. It doesn't matter who they are. Mm -hmm. 
whether they're new or whether they're experienced. Mm-hmm. And what we have found is that since it happens to all of them, what you want is this collection of people. We call it the brain trust, but essentially it's a group of colleagues who have been through it mm-hmm. to help navigate it when you're kind of lost in this swirling mass because it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so the most difficult thing is, is on the people themselves. And we've had some films where the original director who had the idea got lost in it and couldn't get out. Right. And so we had to make some changes in order to get the film done. So in our view, we've had failures, but we basically we try to keep the failures inside. I mean, it's not that they're secret that we've had failures, mm-hmm. but we don't release the film that fails. We will abandon it or we'll restart. And, and mm-hmm. we've had several restarts. Mm-hmm. We just get to the point and say, it's not working. We have to do a major rethink to get this to be w- where it is. So we had to do that with Toy Story. We had to do it with Ratatouille. Wow, no kidding. I've seen, I've seen both of those movies dozens of times. At what point do you stop trying to fix something and abandon it? Are there cases of total abandonment and in which case, or shelving something permanently, in which case, how do you decide to go completely scorched earth blank slate as opposed to reworking something? If that's been done, I don't know. Well, usually there's a buildup. That is, since all of our films to begin with suck. <laughs> Why do you say that? Just well, the rough I mean, draft it, is always really rough? Well, no, what it is, is, it, and, and this is like the big misconception that people have, is that a new film is like the baby version of the final film, when in fact, sometimes the final film bears no relationship to what you started off with. Hmm. And what we found is that first version always sucks. And... I don't mean this because I'm self-effacing or that we're modest about it. I mean it in the sense that they really do suck. (laughs) Now, is this at the storyboarding level or what, how is it appearing? What's the form for that sucky first version? Yeah, you're going through phases of where we, you come up with the ideas, you pitch the ideas, you rework them. Then you do a script and you have a a script read. Mm -hmm. You have actors read through it. And then you go through a couple of versions of that. And then you start to storyboard it up and you put it up and, and uh, it isn't until you get to you know a few versions in that you begin to find okay th- these elements of it are sticking mm-hmm. they're holding like, we we've now got the tent poles for the film mm-hmm. that we can build around but it's a discovery process now and, and the reason it takes long is you're trying to do something that's new right if we just want to throw up a story we, it turns out we know how to do that really quickly and we know how to make it quickly mm-hmm. But it's not a good movie unless you can try to find some way of touching people's emotions or bringing something new to the story. Mm-hmm. So the reason we go out on field trips and do and research trips mm-hmm. is that we're trying to take ourselves and our directors into a place where they bring something that they didn't know or the general audience wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll use an example of Ratatouille, mm-hmm. where the filmmakers went to into the, the three-star restaurants in France and then went mm-hmm. to Thomas Keller's French Laundry and so forth. Now, a lot of people have seen the cooking channel, but the cooking channel is not like a real, the inside of a real restaurant. <laughs> right. Okay. So the thing is, almost nobody has been inside of a real high-end restaurant. Mm-hmm. So they don't actually know what goes on inside there. Mm-hmm. So when we take elements of the way they work in the audience, and we put them in the ratatouille as elements, 
then the audience doesn't know whether they are true or not because they haven't been there, mm-hmm. but they sense that it is. Right. So when you're watching those people in that kitchen, the way they're working and, and the way she's talking because she was teaching him how to cook, right? you have the sense like, oh, this is real. Mm-hmm. And you, you only get that by going out into the world and finding something new. And then you bring that in and you have to meld it into a story. Mm-hmm. And it's a long, slow, painful process. It involves a lot of people and a lot of time. So now the question is, or what your question was, like, you know, what do you do if you abandon it or restart? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Okay. In our history here, we have only abandoned one film. Mm-hmm. The other ones, we either they evolved into what they were or we did a restart. Mm-hmm. And the one that we abandoned, the only reason we abandoned it is that we we realized we needed to bring fresh blood in. And so the person we brought in said, yes, I will do a restart on the film. But since we're restarting, I have an idea which I think is even better, which is a completely different idea. Mm. And when we pitched that idea, we said, you're absolutely right. That's a brilliant idea. What movie did that turn into? It's the one that's coming out next to us. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So rather than being a restart, I would say, okay, this is, this is the film you're going to do. So, because we believed it was a brilliant idea, mm-hmm. but for the others, it was a restart. Mm-hmm. If you compare it with baseball, like mm-hmm. baseball has got this notion that you got the starting pitcher and then you got the, re- the relievers and then you got the finisher. So you've got mm-hmm. multiple pitchers in a game, right? So there's an ideal and the ideal is that you'd like to pitch the perfect game. So one guy takes it all the way through the game and, and finishes up with a win. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideal. Right. But the ideal usually rarely happens. Mm-hmm. The concept which we accept is there are multiple people that do it. Now in film, when we do something, we have someone who starts it, mm-hmm. but their ideal, which is to take it all the way through. If they don't take it all the way through, then they think of themselves as having failed. Right. But if you step back and say, you know, they launched the idea, they had a good idea, they couldn't finish it because it's a different kind of thing when you finish and when you start. Mm-hmm. The, the value of the world is that frequently you devalue the first person and you give high value to the second person. But the reality is it's kind of all part together. And you have to acknowledge the, the fact that the contributions came from a lot of people over a, a great length of time. And it's what makes it painful is that in this world, yeah. if, if, if you have to make that change, it's a personal thing that somebody has. And mm-hmm. that's where the pain comes. It's not the work. Yeah. It's the feelings. Definitely. Well, Ed, I know that uh, you have some time constraints. I'd love if we have a few more minutes just to ask a couple of rapid fire questions. Yes. Okay. Uh, that are very short form. You can answer them as briefly as you'd like. And, uh, the first of that is, what is the book you've given most often as a gift? The book that I've given most often as a gift? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say there is a single one. I, it actually, I just customized every time okay. for who the person is. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Is there any that you've given more multiple times than others? No, I, I would say there are certain children's books which I've given out a few times. Like That's okay. One Monster After Another. Ah, okay. Uh, by Mercer Meyer. <laughs> perfect. I love that book. Yeah, so. perfect. What is your favorite documentary or any favorite documentaries? Oh, the documentaries. You know, I used to go to Sundance. I love documentaries. Is there a favorite one, though? 
Honestly, I can't remember a favorite one. I, for me, the documentary gives us a slice into something we don't see. And so I actually, I like them as a class. Mm-hmm. I've been so busy the last couple of years. I haven't <laughs> no problem. watched many recently. Are there any lectures specifically from the teaching company that stick out in your mind? Well, for me personally there, it is, they'll have a range of things. Some are video, they're science oriented and so forth. Mm-hmm. They've got them on economics and on Shakespeare and so forth. But the thing that had the greatest impact on me was the set of them, which was the whole sweep of world history. And you have to mm-hmm. take like a section at a time mm-hmm. to do it. Although I must admit there was one which was around the time of King Henry VIII, there was that, or the, the, the Tudors and the Stuarts. Mm. I was so blown away with that that as soon as I listened to it, I listened to it again. <laughs> the, the Tudors and the Stewards. Was, was I love that, that particular one. I'll have to check that out. I will trade you one, which is there's a podcast that only puts out an episode every three months or so, three to four months, called Hardcore History. And there's a series called The Wrath of the Cons, which I highly, highly recommend. It, it might have the same effect on you. When you so think, it's called Hardcore Hardcore History. Hardcore History is the podcast, and there's a series, there are four or five parts, called Wrath of the Khans, and it's about, as it turns out, Genghis Khan as opposed to Genghis Khan. It's incredible, and the delivery... Yeah, I, I did read a book on Genghis Khan, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So this sounds great. So it's, oh. so it's all the cons? Or... It, covers, it covers a number of different cons, but provides the pretext, the, the current, I would say the then current context and the delivery. It's a synthesis for many different sources, but give the first episode a listen. And I think that you will very quickly then devour the entire series. It's, it's, oh, I, it's, I will do that. it's amazing. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind? Oh, successful. Oh, well, you know, that's kind of, uh, I mean, the way I view success is actually in, in terms of people's happiness. And mm-hmm. so there aren't people that others normally know about. That's I mean, okay. I mean, that's, that's the real success. I mean, there are friends and so forth that I think, wow, they've achieved this equanimity in life. And I just value that a lot when I already see mm-hmm. people. Do you meditate by chance? Not that you have to. I'm just curious. I do. I meditate uh, between a half hour, an hour a day and half or several years. Do you do that in, in uh, multiple sessions or single session, typically? Single session, in the morning. In the morning. Any particular type of meditation, Vipassana or TM or anything else? It's Vipassana. I actually got started because of visiting uh, the Shambhala Mountain Center, which is Tibetan. Mm-hmm. But in fact, because I lived in Marin, although I live in San Francisco, uh, mm-hmm. we're close to Spirit Rock. I oh, wonderful. become you know quite engaged with the community out of Spirit Rock, which is uh, of that particular style. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Two last questions. Second to last, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Well, I, it's a hard to ask because I view myself as, a, as constantly needing to change. So as I deal with, <laughs> with others and looking and saying, okay, well, how can I do a better job? So it's not like this one thing. It's like, a, like, well, there are a whole bunch of things where I would like to mm-hmm. evolve or improve and alter the view and, and look at the world in different ways. So mm-hmm. for me, it's not so much changing something as can I take on a different perspective so I understand or view things I didn't see before. And uh, very perhaps related, if you could give a piece of advice or a few pieces of advice to your, say, 20-year-old self, what would that advice be? Well, you know, that's a, it's a tough one because to some extent, if I had told my 20-year-old stuff, a lot of things that I know now, 
just about life. I don't know if I would have understood it. Hmm. So I come to the position where, because I think, I mean, the reason I wrote a book was to try to explain things to people. Right. It's like explain <laughs> things to, to myself at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. But the way I view this or any other book is that you read things or you learn about them because you want to figure out how to address issues and problems in life. Mm-hmm. But the danger is always that, whether it's me or somebody else, if we can look at these things as a way of somehow sidestepping the problems. Mm-hmm. And there's a subtle distinction there, and not everybody knows which they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think advice is actually one of, like, you've, you always face towards the problem. You mm-hmm. actually can't avoid the mess in the middle. What you want are mechanisms to deal with the mess. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing that, you will end up in a better place, and you'll get experiences that you can't get any other way than by experiencing them. What, what do you think the advice, whether he would have taken it or not, your 20-year-old self most would have needed to hear would have been? Well, the reason it's hard is, is like I, I've so much enjoyed my life and the people around it. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm aware that if you make a change, then, then the little minuscule changes can actually send you down radically different paths. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, okay, even if I'd made mistakes at the time. Right. Would I want to give myself advice which would have had me avoid that mistake because the mistake was part of who I am that made me where I am? Right. So I can look back and say, well, if some of those things are painful. Like, I wish I hadn't done them or done that or said that. But it's not like I could say, well, avoid doing that because to some extent going through the pain of making that mistake helped alter me. Right. Make you who Make you it are. really hard to go back and say, okay, do something differently. Right, the the unknown butterfly effect or the unpredictable butterfly effect and what it could do to the rest. Well, Ed, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you making the time. Where should people learn more about you or, or what would you encourage them to go check out? Of course, I will also put in the show notes links to the book and other resources, but any any parting thoughts? Well, I mean, we've only touched on the topics, of course, and, when, and we've been here like 50 minutes on this. But mm-hmm. for me, the, all the issues of what it means to engage with others and dealing with uncertainty and, and how you address fear and how you make safe environments are critical ones and how you mm-hmm. look at the world and perceive it and, and uh, our moral and ethical position in that environment are all really important. And I don't have any short way of saying them, but for me, they're important, and, and I hope I could at least have touched on a few of them in the book and, in, and talking about some of our experiences as we grew as a company. And I want to make it clear that we haven't figured it out. The challenges in front of us are every bit as big as they've always been. <laughs> well, as it should be, right? Mountains to climb, I suppose. Well, I can't wait to see what you guys produce next. And uh, given how many mutual friends we have, hopefully we'll at some point bump into each other in the Bay Area. But for now, at least, I will uh, let you get back to your day. And thank you very much for taking the time. All right. Thank you very much, Tim. Okay. Great talking with you. All right. Thanks, Ed. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you want more of the Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fourhourblog.com. Where you'll find an award winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter at twitter.com slash T Ferris. That's T F E R R I S S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Ferriss. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>